Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. If you've enjoyed the more than 125 interviews in this podcast series, will you do a little service work by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? This show is another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. My guest on today's episode is Scott S., a man whose adversities during his 20 years of sobriety seemingly outweigh many adversities he suffered while on his way to AA recovery. Scott emerged from an abusive and traumatic childhood into an adolescence where he found alcohol and music to soothe his anxieties and repressed feelings. By 17, his downhill slide into alcoholism was severe enough to convince Scott's newly sober father to join him in AA. Many half-hearted attempts at sobriety peppered Scott's late teens until he finally compiled nine years sober. But a lifestyle filled with nonstop touring, songwriting deadlines, and long days producing his own and others' music led to a sharp drop-off in meetings. Scott relapsed. By the time he finally stepped back into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, Scott's alcoholism had depleted him physically, mentally, and spiritually. Fortunately, AA held the solution Scott desperately needed, and he put himself to work in the steps with a sponsor and sponsoring other men. As the years passed, Scott enjoyed the gifts and faced the challenges that AA offers. Late into his sobriety, however, Scott faced the biggest threat to his sobriety in the form of metastatic cancer. Determined to not let the other disease stop him, Scott submitted to multiple surgeries and years of sickening chemotherapy. Slowed but undeterred by his illness, he dug into his AA program by gathering his fellows into a tight circle of support and by remotely participating in as many as three Zoom AA meetings a day, as well as live attendance at his home group when he feels he's well enough to travel. Scott's remarkable story is one of perseverance and faith, and is proof positive that active and unceasing participation in AA is the key to a life of personal healing, service to others, and unfailing hope. I believe you'll find much inspiration in Scott's words and works. His is a multifaceted tale sure to please newcomers and old-timers alike as well as anyone else seeking a solid testimonial that AA recovery really works. So keep your feet on the footpath, your eyes on the road, and your ears open for many similarities in the next hour as we dive into another fine episode of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, Scott S. I said, Scott, now I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Scott. I really appreciate you doing this today. You and I have gotten to know each other over the past three years or so attending the same Zoom meeting out of Los Angeles on a Saturday every week. It's been kind of cool to get to know you and also spend a little bit of time offline talking about various and sundry things. And I, I really appreciate that. Now, you're coming off. You told me today you were going to be working with your uh, sponsees on a Zoom call. Do you do that every week? I do it uh, every day except for Saturday, actually. I have at least one sponsee that I'm taking through the book. Uh, every day of the week, except for Saturday. How how do you do that? I, I know guys who take guys through the book and they get as granular as reading it out loud to each other. How do you handle that? So the way that I do it, we start with the serenity prayer. And then I have a, a little different version of the set aside prayer that I like to use. Uh-huh. It goes, God, please help me set aside everything I think I know about this book, these steps, and especially you, God for an open mind and a positive experience. Because I, I've learned that I need to be specific in my, mm-hmm. or else I'll get a lot of lessons that, <laughs> that, I <didn't, laughs> that I wasn't really asking for. So, and then we go one page at a time and we start at the forwards and we usually read that in one week and then we'll read the doctor's opinion one week and then Bill's story one week. Uh, there is a solution one week. And we read chapter three, chapter four, obviously. And then when we get to the third step in chapter five, we go up to the third step prayer. Mm-hmm. We stop there. And then we usually open up the uh, 12 and 12 and read the third step out of there as well. But it gives them a whole week to process it. And then we go into the inventory process the next week. 
and it's usually I get them going on the resentment list first mm -hmm. and do it exactly the way that I was shown to do it through Joe and Charlie uh, out of the book. Mm -hmm. That can take them at that point, the ball is in their court, but I'm here to support them. So like if they're, because a lot of the times, at least in my experience, alcoholics see the fourth step as some type of math equation that they can't solve. <laughs> that's the way i saw it and i was like i don't understand what i'm trying to do here yeah and i spent yeah. six months to find someone to take me through the steps and i was lucky enough to to land in a joe and charlie seminar when they were still alive at six months and they showed me how to do it that's really fabulous what i noticed the, the first time i did it that my blood was boiling the joe and charlie seminar <laughs> you only got one night so you go home and you you say your prayers and you write this list mm -hmm. and then you come back the next day and then they show you how to do, you know, the, the phantom fourth or fifth columns. But it was, it was a relief because I thought I saw, wow, you can actually get this done in one day. And, and for a lot of the times, like from a sponsor standpoint, when, when we're dealing with new people, we're almost like an ER doctor, <laughs> you know, like they come in and they're just bleeding and we're just trying to stop the bleeding, mm -hmm. get them to focus on some, some type of uh, healing. Right. Yeah. So for me, when I was brand new, I went to like five or six meetings a day because I, I just knew I couldn't keep my head from telling me that this is complete nonsense. And why are you here? Yeah, I get that. I knew why I was there because I've been around AA since I was 17 years old. You were scared of, of the same things that guys you sponsor are scared of too, right? Correct. Yeah, I wanted to do it right. I've lost more men over the fourth step than any other step. And one of the things I started to do a number of years ago was suggest to them that they write the fourth step as if there was no fifth step. Because reading ahead and knowing that anything you put on that fourth step, you're going to be asked to talk about on the fifth step. And so I'll just nip that in the bud and not put it on the fourth step. A lot of the times with my guys, you know, the first 20 minutes of like our Zoom call, which is mm -hmm. basically what it is, is spent getting to know each other. And what I've found is that like you can develop lifelong bonds that way. They know that you're just like them and you develop a trust because we only really have to trust one person around here that's true if i can develop the trust and be a tight uh, mouth friend and then i found that we can get through the process a lot quicker and most people haven't had that kind of person in their life either in their family or amongst their friends that is a tight-lipped trustable honorable person who will keep their their relationship safe and sound so I found the same thing as you have. Now, how long have you been sober, Scott? 20 years. Yeah. What's your sobriety day? October 1st, 2002. So you're coming up on 21 right around the corner here, aren't you? Correct, yeah. yeah. I'm well into my 21st year is what they say. That's great. Well, I really appreciate your, um, your outlining how you handle sponsoring and getting guys working into the steps. So what was going on in your life? that made you want to go into an AA meeting or, or get sober? Was that the first time you tried to get sober? No, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous about the age of 17. My dad had gotten sober and my dad was um, making these suggestions to me, right? You can't get 30 days, but you can't get 60 days, but you can't get 90. And then I would get them and then go celebrate. <laughs> and then I put together a year and then I put together close to nine years. And I say close to nine years because I, I don't know. I stopped going to meetings when I was maybe 25, 26. And then about somewhere around four years later, I, I thought that I could have a half a glass of Merlot. So you had that period of sobriety going on there. What were, what were you hearing that right before you went out stopped making sense to you or stopped being true or didn't matter anymore? It started to feel like a uh, Christian organization and I, and I say that you know in the sense of the word that uh, I was ignorant to what it truly was right and I'd gone through the steps but I wasn't working with anybody I wasn't taking anybody through the process I wasn't helping anybody I was just there I think to develop a relationship with my father how long had he been sober he died with 26 years of sobriety 
that was uh, 12 years ago now, almost 13. So was that to make up for a relationship that you had or didn't have when you were a kid with him? I think so. Yeah, we didn't. We didn't. He he left the house when I was like four, mm-hmm. and he was you know the the every other weekend guy, but he was never there. It was his his new wife that um, was basically there and taking care of my brother and I. He was either drunk, passed out on the couch at work, or playing golf. So. How old were you when he finally got sober? 17. Okay. So at 17, he finds AA and immediately tries to turn you on to it as well. Yeah. Yeah. He, he, he knows what's best for me at that point. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's, oh, I'm just talking boy. about from my perspective, right? Like when you're a 17 year old kid, you're going to do everything you can to prove that you're not like your parents. And so I think that, uh, the bleeding deacon phase was on for him at that point. It had worked for him and it would work for anybody. I think that he did the best that he could with the knowledge that he had at that point. Were you involved at all in uh, Al-Anon or Alateen or Alatot or any of that kind of thing? Yeah, I went to Alateen when I was like 13, but I went because of a, a, a friend of mine's uh, mom was in AA. And she took us to the Alano Club. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was cool because you had video games there and you could um, you could play pool, yeah. watch TV, things like that. But the Alatine, I, I didn't understand the concept. I didn't understand what we were really doing around here until I got back this time. You really need some good leaders with Alatine to leave their egos at the door yeah. to run good Alatine meetings. I mean, I didn't even understand what we were doing at all. I thought it was more like a group therapy. I, you know, I had big problems with, with the word God. When did that all start for you? I think it started for me when I was about 12. I had, there was a lot of trauma uh, in my childhood mm-hmm. uh, from molestations to uh, betrayal security issues. The lady that babysitted uh, my brother and I, when we were kids, ended up drowning her stepson in the San Joaquin River because she thought that her husband loved her, loved his own son more than hers. And this is the 70s, right? There was like psychiatrists or psychologists running around our neighborhood asking if everyone was okay. So it was just like, you know, those three people that were involved in that, which were our childhood friends, ended up going away going to jail, going to prison. And um, we just went about our lives. So at about 12, it started. So how could there be a God? You know, like if, 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 if things like this could happen. And then there was half of me that believed there was a God. And there was half of me that believed there wasn't a God. But the half of me that believed there was a God was terrified of God. And God had never done anything for me that I could see. Before you were 12 and had that feeling about God and that whatever understanding you had at that time, how, how had you dealt with traumatic experiences and, and uh, abuse? How did you deal with it in your earlier years? I played a lot of sports. Whatever season was going on, I was playing, right? So hmm. it was like soccer, baseball, football, basketball, but more on a street level. But baseball, I really accelerated in. And then I, I found music at 11 and that became my passion and it, it's been it's been my my passion ever since even though I, I when i first got sober this time i stopped playing music entirely because i thought that my ego couldn't control i couldn't control myself so i was like i gotta put that away right i gotta put that away so you got into music but then you put it aside how long had you put it aside for about two years when i first got sober because I I'd come from that world that was, I had my own record label and I had a rehearsal facility for bands and I was in mm-hmm. a touring band and I was also, you know, doing a lot of really big, what would be interpreted as big things at a, at a you know, at the age of like 28. What I learned is that I, I can't deal with judgment at that level. I couldn't deal with judgment at that level and I needed uh, drugs and alcohol to be able to keep going and that's that's why i felt like i relapsed right mm. and i lost i was married i lost i lost her i lost all of my businesses i lost all of all of the trust in anybody that i had that had trust in me in that industry just burned everything to the ground 
You burned it to the ground as a result of all the drinking or just the behavior that went along with that or the way you were feeling about yourself? It was both. I was terrified of it. I was terrified of success. I was absolutely, my childhood dreams, when they started to come through, it terrified me. Panic attacks came back. Everything, everything came back. And I've suffered from panic, panic attacks since I was like 13 years old, right after all that stuff happened. Yeah. Where, where do you think that came from earlier on in your life? That, that fear of, that fear of success. I had the same thing. I, I, and it's, it's always baffled me exactly where that came from. Cause my dad was a super pessimist and very, very dark outlook on life. And don't don't plan for anything to go good in your life because you probably don't deserve it anyway. Yeah. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where did you land on that? You know, in my whole I think that in my whole childhood, I was always told, "Well, you got to have a plan B, right?" Like this music isn't this is just a, a fantasy. So I think it came from there. And you know, my mom basically wanted to be a housewife. Mm-hmm. My dad left, so she was forced to go to work for the DMV. She was like a secretary, and then she worked her way up, and she retired as like uh, really pretty high up in Caltrans through the end of her career. But she had two kids that she had to take care of, so she was constantly drilling us: "You have to have a plan B, right? You have to get a safe job. You have to do things safely." And I was not a safe person. That makes it tough to walk out into the danger zone, doesn't it? Yeah, because the whole the whole point of it is to prove them wrong. Yeah, so we we do probably just the exact opposite of what they want us to do. And I I kind of notice that these days, I've got grown children, the youngest of whom is thirty one. But even to this day, there's always that sense of whatever it is I suggest to them, they do just the opposite for whatever reason. And they're and they're all really outstanding people, but. To this day, it still befuddles me because a sponsee will do what you ask him to do. Your own kid won't. And it's uh, (laughs) and and mainly, I guess, maybe if the kid came to you with the same amount of need and want as a sponsee does, maybe that would be different. But that was the beauty of the relationship that me and my father had the last nine years of his life, because I actually wanted what he had. My dad left the household when I was four. And then my older brother, who was, you know, seven at the time, was kind of forced to become what a father. And I mean, you have a seven-year-old who's kind of forced to become a, the man of the house. It's, it doesn't usually turn out well. Well, that's rough. No kid should have to act like an adult before they're actually an adult. That's correct. And it's a good thing I can see that now, right? Because I couldn't see that before. Does alcoholism or addiction run in your family as you look back over the generations? Deeply. Yeah, deeply. I have a lot of cousins who have the disease who are now sober. Mm-hmm. Um, all of my dad's brothers, except for one, was alcoholic. His sister was alcoholic. His dad was alcoholic. My grandmother, I wouldn't classify her as an alcoholic, but she enjoyed her alcohol. You know, the whole, that whole, my whole dad's whole side of the family was based around alcohol. Like a, you give grandma a kiss, you get a drink off of her beer. So I learned from a very young age how to <laughs> manipulate women to get things that I needed, you know? Just got to kiss them a lot if you want to yeah, get drunk, that's right? right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Well, I, I think you and I find most people we run into in the program have some kind of legacy of alcoholism or drug addiction in the families. and. It doesn't make it any easier to deal with, but I know from my own experience, having a an older brother and an older sister and a younger sister, that at least two of them, if not all three of them, never really dealt with their issues of the completely dysfunctional home in which we all grew up. They never dealt with it the way I've dealt with it in AA. And I'm thinking, wow, and I'm just barely getting along. What can their lives be like? And sure enough, their lives are upside down, inside out most days. And uh, so never underestimate the power of a good 12-step program, huh? Yeah, seriously. I mean, my brother, who's a good example of that, hasn't had a drink of alcohol in 30-something years now, but he didn't like 12-step programs. For some people, it, it, it takes, but it takes a long time to take. And then for others, it just doesn't take, but they do it out of spite to prove that they can do it which is what, what I did the first nine years. I mean, I, I spent my whole life trying to prove I wasn't an alcoholic. 
Well, you became one. I became one. I don't think he ever really did, you know, because he stopped drinking when he was like 20 years old or 21 years old. Stopped doing all drugs. And, and um, he didn't seem to have the same issues that, that I had. You know, so I think that he didn't cross that invisible line like I did. So he had what what one of our members of that Saturday morning group calls so dryity. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but he's a good guy, you know. I mean, like I can count on him, um, and I've always been able to count on him my entire life. But it doesn't mean he didn't make mistakes, and I didn't make mistakes. Well, of course, given given the kind of childhood that you guys were handed. So you started drinking when you were, you said 12 or? Yeah, about 12. I mean, I, yeah, really started drinking at about 12 where it became a prominent part of uh, my existence. Was that brought to you by people outside your home, friends and groups you were hanging with? Or did you start doing that at home? What was that like? No, it was always in social environments, right? Whether you're like ditching school and drinking. We had this tree we used to go to to drink at. It was like completely encapsulated so you couldn't see inside. And it was a form of social uh, lubrication being a young teenager. You know, my heroes, they all drank. That's what they did, right? So like mm -hmm. all the rock stars of that time, it was a constant advertisement for Jack Daniels. <laughs> so I thought that's what I needed to do if, if I wanted to be like that. Yeah, I get that. Well, we're from a whole generation of people like that. And, you know, nowadays, if you have those kind of feelings, all you need to do is get online and, and express them all you want. But yeah. in the days in the days that you and I were influenced, that was going on a lot. And, and even though we saw the negative impact, you know, Jim Morrison and Janis Joplin and Jimi Hendrix and some of the others who left the world as a result of that, there were so many more who never seemed to suffer any kind of real consequences from what they were doing. And, and were having the time of their life. True. How did you perceive that whole world? And were you drawn to it, to music more because of that? Or were you already in music for music's sake? You know, I started off being in music as a fan. So, and and I, I really did well to carry that uh, for, for the majority of my teen years. But, you know, as a fan, as a, uh, what would be considered kind of a working musician, you know, by the time I was like 18, you start to lose sight of why you got into it and start and you start to get a little bit jaded, especially if you're, you know, living in the Los Angeles area, which I, I had moved to when I was eight, like 18 or 19, one of the two, I, a couple of times where I'd been there and then moved back home, been there, moved back home, been there, moved back home. Where was home? Fresno. Okay. So you moved to LA when you were a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be young, a young uh, adult. But I mean, I enjoyed every, all the aspects of it, uh, you know, the playing and, and uh, the attention that you get from it. And then, you know, being able to drink as at the rehearsals or whatever we were doing, we always had alcohol, always had alcohol present. It seemed like that's just what you did, right? And that, like, that's when you're going to create like some of your best work, like Bill talks about. You know, all men yeah. are genius, you know, they create their best work while drinking. <laughs> I, I believe yeah. that before I ever read that. You mentioned judgmentalism earlier, the fear of judgment. Was there a turning point for you between, let's say, doing what you did, knowing that you were good, feeling like you deserved it versus being scared of the judgment, being more interested in what people thought of you than what you thought of yourself? Was, was there a certain point at which you kind of turned on that? Yeah, I would, I would say probably at around five or six years of sobriety what did that look like it, it became more of like i use music as therapy mm -hmm. in hopes that maybe it, somebody else can relate to it i guess i i it's okay I, i'd like to explain like what i what i mean by that because yeah. when i was a kid i mean i would hear a song that would move me it would move me there was an unexplainable connection that happened with that song I learned the power of that from a very young age, you know, by listening to some of our friends and, and things like that, that, that we know who are, who are very good at doing that. I wanted to do that, but I didn't know how to do that when I was drinking and using. My songs were very angry. They were, they were just like, you're screwing me and I want everyone to know. So they came from a victim standpoint is is what I'm what I'm getting at. Now the songs that I started writing 
writing in my fifth year of sobriety became more about an issue that I was working through personally and how I would get through it. Mm. Now, I don't know if you can, you can't probably hear it when you listen to it, right? But some people will hear it. And and I had to become a fan again. And that was, that was uh, shared to me by another alcoholic in this program who was a very successful musician and Hall of Fame musician. Mm-hmm. Pulled me aside at a meeting and said, look, Scott, you, you have to learn to be a fan again. If you only touch one person with the song you've written, you've done your job. Did that sink in immediately or did it take a while for that to really catch you? Well, because of the person who it was coming from, I don't feel like I could name him, but the person it was coming from, it meant something immediately. I get it. So that was that was a real turning point for you yeah. between the angry Scott of yesteryears and the, shall we say, less pessimistic or even optimistic Scott? Yeah, I, you know what I would say that they're, they're that most of the songs start out pessimistic but end optimistic. So it's <laughs> it's like the process that I go through, right? Yeah, that's very very true. I'm sure. When you were out there playing, and I've interviewed a number of musicians and people in the entertainment business and sports business, usually there with their success comes a lot of enabling and a lot of codependent people and nobody who will really tell you the truth and everybody who is essentially uh, doing what they have to do to keep you in a way that will keep them employed. What, what would you say about that and, and the enabling and the codependence that goes on amongst the people surrounding the musicians and, and other folks that, you know, Wow, that's a tough topic. You know, that's a tough topic because a lot of the time the artist is completely protected from any negativity and it's all hmm. about like keeping them happy right and they need someone like me or you to come into their lives and tell them the truth gently and not not uh, not attacking them because if you attack you'll immediately be pushed out um, like i i would do i would fire anybody that uh, that i assumed was trying to move into my world does that make sense like yeah it does and of course, that goes on not only in music, but other professions as well. In every, every aspect of life. Yeah, we, we build the illusions that we want, and then we start to employ people who buy into and believe in those same illusions so they can get a paycheck every week. I, I can imagine AA might be one of the few places where you, as the person who had been protected all those years, could actually hear what was being said and, and take it to heart. Is, is that a fair assessment? Oh, it was it was the only place I think because if it came from anyone else, I just said, well, I would think automatically, well, that might be true for you, but that's not true for me. Yeah, one of the people I interviewed recently said something about how the people around him were all so involved in the same behavior and the same drugs and alcohol that he was that. That became the standard. That became the normal in his little world. You know, how, how can you how can you fight that sort of thing? Being somebody who wants to stay sober, I think the only way that it worked for me is that I knew someone that was sober. Mm-hmm. That that who I had seen drink and who oh, no, but I'm talking about my father, and that I had seen turn his life around. But yeah, when you're when everybody is is involved in the same thing that you're doing. And for me, it was kind of, it was torture because uh, I was sober at a young age and then, you know, went out and there was people that I would run into that would be like, hey, let's go to a meeting, right? And I like to reference that the lines in the, there's a solution, right? Like go to a bitter end or accept spiritual help. Mm -hmm. You know, if you caught me coming out of Vaughn's or Ralph's or something, and I had a fifth of Jim Bean or Jack Daniels or something in a pocket full of outside issues. And you said, hey, Scott, do you want to go to a meeting? I would say, are you going to be here tomorrow? Because if uh, if you catch me going into the store and I don't have anything, I might be interested. But if you catch me coming out and I have my solution, forget it. And, and that's the best way to describe what it's like being around people who are capable of keeping things flowing for 24 hours a day. Yeah, I get that. And even within AA, one of the 
curiosities I had over the years that I ended up needing to talk to some people in the program about were those folks of celebrity or renown or they were well known in business or they were uber rich, whatever, is that whenever I would see those people in a regular meeting of AA, it always heartened me because I always had heard that, okay, the musicians have their own meetings. The politicians have their own meetings. You know, the docs have caduceus, uh, you know, yeah. the, 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 rock, the rock stars do what they do with other like-minded people in the program. I'm wondering how broad is that when it comes to the program itself, if you're limiting yourself to just meetings where it's other people in your same profession. Like lawyers do that all the time. They have the lawyers have their own meetings. Police do it. Police and fire. And and I get that. And I, and I know that there are certain people who, who are really concerned about anonymity and, you know, reporters following them into meetings and that sort of stuff. But these days with the Internet and the access to so much private information about so many people, there's nothing new under the sun anymore. I take great pains to make sure that everything in my podcast is anonymized, even to the extent that facilities and people's last names are not, can't be identified by what they're saying on the program. But, you know, some people just don't feel like they can relate to the average guy on the street in AA and need to be with their own kind. Sometimes I find that a little disappointing because there's some really good messages amongst those people that need to make it to people who are not in their profession. Does that make sense? Absolute sense. And uh, I, I think that in my experience, when I became Scott alcoholic, as opposed to, you know, Scott, this character, that's when everything turned around for me. Really? Yeah, absolutely. That's when, you know, because I, it was always a lot of come here, get away, come here, get away, come here, get away. I'm never going to allow you really into my life. That's a classic alcoholic trait. Because if I allow you in, you're going to hurt me. You're going to betray me in some way, shape, or form. And I can't tolerate that. I don't mean that from a, from a violence standpoint, but I really do suffer with betrayal, whether it's my own body betraying me, my own head betraying me, or somebody else on the outside betraying me. And I think that every celebrity has that experience of betrayal. But I tell you, there, especially when I was new, in sobriety, there was nothing more powerful mm -hmm. than walking into an AA meeting and seeing one of your heroes sitting there talking about their recovery, not talking about the press, not talking about their career, talking about what goes on in their head. There's nothing more powerful than that for me. And when I was new and early, I would listen to these speaker CDs. Remember, they used to have tapes and CDs. Everything's online now. But back then, you <laughs> it was like this network that you had to tap into to get these tapes. And I would listen to some of the celebrities on that that we're talking about. And it was and it would just blow my mind, you know, that they were able to come in and say, you know, I'm such and such and I'm an alcoholic. And I think just like you do. Yeah, it brings them down to the to the human level. Because as they are stars being stars or celebrities being celebrities, there's a part of us, I think, or maybe just a part of me that doesn't want to recognize the fact that they have a problem, even if it's the same problem I have. You know, we idealize people for so long that we're willing to suspend judgment about the things that they're doing that are ruining their lives. And my guess is that that happens a lot in, in, in your industry where the simple truth be told is not and people die over that kind of stuff. Yeah, they, they absolutely do. You mentioned another aspect of your life, your body betraying you. Could you speak a little bit to that and, and with regard to when it started and were you sober and some of the other things about that, if you don't mind? Yeah, no, you know, I got I got diagnosed in um, 2018 with melanoma. Mm -hmm. At that point, it was just on my shoulder. What happened is, is that when you hear that C word, my whole brain locked up, mm -hmm. like everything locked up, you know, and I had to go see a therapist who was familiar with with what we do around here, but wasn't one of us. And we had to go back into my life. And the, the big thing for me was that I never really had security as a child, right? Like not real like parental security where you're protected by your family. Everything for me re revolved around fear. Yeah. And my brain, the way that it worked, it would lock on to an interpretation of whether real or imagined 
that something or somebody was trying to hurt me. And I felt like my body was doing that to me. And it locked, it locked up my whole brain. And I had to do like, I mean, I continuously do what, what we, you and I are doing here. Right. But I needed to seek outside help as well to learn a little bit more about why that was happening. And they take that all the way back to, to childhood where you didn't have any real parental protection because my mom wasn't in the house uh, because she was forced to work and raise me and my brother and my dad wasn't around. So it was just a four-year-old and a seven-year-old trying to navigate the world the best that they could, right? And, and you're repressing all the bad stuff. Repressed it all. You know, compacting it down until one day it, it just explodes on you, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah, that's correct. So you were sober 15 years or so when you got that diagnosis? Yeah, yeah. When I got that first diagnosis and then, you know, in 2021, it came back. I always felt like it was going to come back, right? So like I believed it was going to come back and it did come back. And it came back in uh, my small intestine and I had two surgeries to remove the tumors. Mm -hmm. I've been undergoing chemo for the last almost, almost two years. That's been a whole new level of really accepting mm -hmm. that there is a power out there greater than myself. And, I, you know, I felt like God betrayed me too, right? Like, like, God, I've been doing all this work for you, and this is my reward. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. What kind of feedback were you getting from the people in the program who you were closest to, and maybe even those who we weren't as close to, but people who you'd see in meetings once they knew what you now knew, either about the original melanoma or about the uh, intestinal cancer? Well, what was interesting is that people uh, really mobbed around me, picked me up, right? Mm -hmm. But there is also an aspect of pity that I didn't like. Like I don't like people feeling sorry for me because I'm the only one that can do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes you want people to feel sorry along with you because misery does love company. Well, I, I, that's what I learned. You know, I learned how to let people give, not just always be the giver, right? I get that. Because I felt like before I was always the taker. So I had a lot of karmatic points that I had to build up in order to be square. And, you know, for the first, I don't know, 12 or 14 chemotherapies, it was pretty amazing because someone was here at my gate to pick me up and take me, you know, and I, I live 60 or 70 miles outside of Los Angeles. A sponsee or a friend in the program or somebody that I knew from the program was always here to take me to my medical commitments. And so they'd give up a couple hours of their day just in driving time. It was a lot more than that. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, they'd pick me up at like six in the morning and take me to Pasadena area. And then they would have to sit around because I'd have to get blood work, see the oncologist and then do the chemotherapy, which was like pretty much an eight-hour day. And then they would turn around and bring me all the way home. How long did it take you to get comfortable with that, to let that happen without feeling? Because I know whenever I've been in tough spots and people want to do for me, my initial reaction is, no, 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 I, I can do it. I, I feel like I'm imposing on them or whatever. Yeah. Did you have a turning point on that? I thought, you know, my sponsor was really instrumental about that. Um, mm -hmm. Saying, you know, these people, they want to help. You're not uh, hindering them or imposing anything on them. You're denying them hmm. the ability to be able to show their appreciation for, out of what you've done for them. Hmm. And I had to think about that because if you're like me, it doesn't, nothing comes automatically. Even though I know what my defective character is, mm -hmm. it takes a while 
to be w willing to actually let it go. And it was probably the sixth ride where I was like, okay, I'm not just going to say, hey, thank you, thank you, thank you the entire trip, right? <laughs> I know I'm being a burden. I know that this is, you know, like I'm, I'm making myself feel bad again for betraying myself. I get that. And and what you're talking about, the gift is in the receiving, not so much uh, in allowing people to be of service. I, I know whenever I've been around people who've been really sick or whatever else, first of all, it's really hard to know what to say. So a lot of people just don't say anything. Right. The other thing that happens is lots and lots of assumptions like, well, I'm sure his sponsor's calling him and I'm sure, you know, he's been around so long. He must have all these people. So I'll just, I'll let, I'll let this go. And then you come to find out that nobody's gone to visit the guy because yeah. everybody's thinking that same thing. Did you encounter some of that? Well, only because I live so far outside of the city. Mm -hmm. and, and because of the fact that I am so active, so they would always see me. But what was fortunate is that I have encompassed myself so deeply into Alcoholics Anonymous and constantly, you know, uh, having commitments, constantly being accountable. Mm -hmm. uh, allowed that to me. And then there was another thing that helped me with that. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's a documentary called The Moses Code. It's on YouTube. It talks about your body, your, your mind, your soul does not know the difference between whether you're receiving a gift or giving a gift. It doesn't know the difference. Yeah. The question is, are you allowing it to happen? I, I picked up uh, some of that and it talks about like, well, I am healed. I am, right? That means I'm saying, I believe that God is the grass and the trees and the sky and you and other people that I come into contact with. And I believe that God will bring just the right person with just the right information at just the right time into my life, right when I need to hear it. Uh -huh. But I also need to practice tuning this head. And but I got to go to AA meetings, say number one. I have to practice about what, what it talks about in the book. So I have to do my morning meditations. I have to, throughout the day, ask God to direct my thinking. And then I added some other tools, some other arsenals that I've learned saying to myself i i am healed i am and i'm talking about the other disease i'm not talking about the ongoing one right i am recovered i am right mm -hmm. i am worthy of receiving gifts i am why do you think it takes us and and i've i've struggled with this question throughout my sobriety and you know so why does it take the really tough times to kind of activate God working in our lives or making demonstrations in our lives that he is there. Why do you, why do you think it, it always takes the, the tough stuff and the easy stuff we, we tend to just take for granted? Yeah. It's like, okay, everything's going great. I got this, God. Thanks. Right. <laughs> right. But then like when everything's going really bad, man, you go deep when, when these things happen, at least from my own thought process. I had to believe, I have a force to believe that God is working through me constantly and in me constantly. I learned this phrase and I had to believe this phrase. This is exactly where God wants me to be at this moment. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be okay with that. And I'm going to be happy in that moment. That is not easy to do. And you look at all of the spiritual leaders of, of history. And you look at some of the things that they went through and you look at the access that we have now compared to what they didn't have then. And I just think that, um, number one, I know God exists now. Mm -hmm. Number two, I know that God is with me, whether, whether we make this or we don't make this. And number three, I believe that it is my duty to teach as many people as possible what was taught to me to be able to make it through anything that I've experienced in my life. That's a beautiful way to put it. And what you just mentioned about, you know, some of the great avatars of history having to go through trials and tribulations. I think my misconception for a long time always was we go through those things to be given what we've already got already deep down inside. And so for, for those people, I don't think it was so much a matter of them getting something as much as it was exposing what was already there within themselves. And uh, you know, sometimes that sounds a lot better than it really feels. But, uh, you, you know, at the end of the day, when I've had struggles, I've had some uh, some astonishingly 
difficult things happened to me during sobriety. And I think to myself, man, all of those things I did during the years leading up to that point were just barely enough to get me through it. And thinking, man, what of all the things that I was doing consistently, had I stopped, would I have gone out and drank? And, And that's a scary, scary proposition. So you're in the program for 15 years before this cataclysm happens in your life. Correct. What were people in the program and meetings seeing in Scott that would encourage them or make them enthusiastic or look at you and want what you have during that 15 years? I think it was the consistency. They would see me week in and week out in the same places, even though, you know, I wasn't there when I was in the hospital because I was in the hospital for like a month and a half, you know, in and out, in and out, in and out. Mm-hmm. But they would see me and they, and they would see me drive. You know, because my the home group that I go to is in Long Beach. It's it's like 70 miles away from my house, but it's where I got sober. I got sober in Long Beach. It was where my sponsor was. So I would go and see him and see the other guys that I sponsored from that area. They would see me doing it every week, even though I just had surgery or, you know, had all this medical stuff. I was still there. I was still consistent. I was still doing everything that I was doing before. And I think that that blows people away because then they're like, I don't know how you do it. They see that level of commitment that just is way beyond the call of duty consideration. Good meetings are worth driving to. And the people in them maintaining a relationship with people is more important than whatever the time and cost is of driving to see those people on a regular basis. So like you, I have meetings that are the cornerstones where if I'm not there a week or two, people are calling me saying, where are you? Where are you? That's right. But by the same token, when you get a lot of years of sobriety, and I would count you and I both as people who have a long time of sobriety, people, when they don't see you, they go ahead and assume certain things just because of the number of years sober that you have, you know, like, oh, he must be okay because he's been sober. Yeah, he's fine. He, he's, he's fine. And then you hear from somebody, hey, you know, Bob is really going through a tough time over there, you know, and. And uh, but nobody's called them. And so I I think you're going to meetings and staying connected with all the original people who are so important in your life. That bodes well for our future of continued sobriety. You know, Howard, I, I think that we are uh, emotionally inept. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I know you've been to an alcoholic funeral like nobody knows what to do. You know, they don't know if they're supposed to look sad. And we're so concerned about appearance. That you go every looking at the ground, they don't know what to do. It's just it's a completely confusing scenario because it's not like a meeting, except for if you're new to the meeting. I was a sidewalk crack counter. That's what I did. I'd stare at the ground and I would count the cracks because I was so I had no social skills when I was sober. And I think that it happens when somebody gets sick too. We don't know how what to do. We don't know how to help. And what I found is that just chucking, being the person, being chucked, even though I, I just want to say, I'm fine, leave me alone, right? <laughs> right. Allowing them to chuck on me, not only heals me, but it heals them. The checkers are marvelous people. I do a good deal of that, but never feel like it's enough. Yeah. And, uh, you know, especially if I haven't checked on somebody and something happens, I don't ever want to be that guy that nobody checked on and he kind of faded away. And I'm real clear about making sure that I know people in meetings. There's so many people who have such limited connections that they get sick and nobody knows their last name. And it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, Bob is in the hospital. Well, that could be 20 different guys. It could be 20 different hospitals. Right, 20 different hospitals. And and you know what? Which Bob are you talking about? Oh, no, the Bob who used to sit next to that lamp in the corner of the room. And oh, yeah, that Bob, the guy who had who drove the uh, the uh, Jaguar, uh, that guy. (laughs) I don't want to be known by the car I drive or the geographic position in the room. I want to be known by just being there for other people. And it sounds to me like you're the same way. You know, in Central California, a lot of people don't know each other's last names in, in the program. But in Southern California, a lot of people identify with their last names in closed meetings, in which I do too. The reason is exactly what you're talking about, because if you get in trouble, the group needs to know how to find you. So I think there's a huge misconception on what it means to be anonymous uh, in the rooms 
It talks about the you know, level of press, radio, film, internet, whatever. Yeah, it's it, it's very important to me that I am able to connect with people on like a childhood friendship level. Those friends that you have when you were a kid that you could call them and had not talked for 10 or 20 years and called them and it's like you never stop. Yeah, pick up where you left off. My intention with the guys that I work with is to be able to teach them how to teach this. My goal is to take you through the steps, but it's also for you to learn how to take others through the steps because the power in that mm -hmm. just between you and I is like a childhood friendship. It never goes away. That's a brilliant way to put it. When I think about all the childhood friends I lost simply because we didn't stay in touch. Of course, Alcoholics Anonymous gives us a great reason to stay in touch. And, you know, whenever I've gone to the international conventions, that's just an unreal experience. Uh, just to be with that many alcoholics taking over the city. It's just like nothing I've ever seen. But you're right, you know, just having those kind of relationships with even just a handful of people is so important. You know, I wanted to go back to something that, that we were talking about earlier, and that is for people who are wondering, can they continue to do what they do once they get sober, where everything in the world around them, let's say they they work as a musician or they work in a in an environment where going out to the bar every day after work is the thing to do or going on business trips where they have an open tab and that sort of thing. When you got sober, but yet still wanted to continue to do what you did as a musician, being in a band or producing or writing or whatever, how did you navigate that early on? And, and where did you turn for suggestions on how to get through that without drinking or making yourself so miserable that you weren't drinking that things got worse? There was another alcoholic in this program who has well, eight or nine more years than I do. He would go out on the road. He would go to a meeting in every single town. He has a huge talent backing one of the most successful songwriters that we've probably ever known on this planet. Mm -hmm. Every day, if I was out, but I was around the same town as him, I would meet him for a meeting in certain areas. So we did that like San Francisco and Toronto and things like that. And he taught me that no matter where you are, you need to go to a meeting, you know, just walk into a meeting, as Scott an alcoholic to try to stay grounded. And what that taught me is that no matter where I am on the planet, I am connected to this social network that nobody else has. So you can go anywhere. You can go to Asia, you can go to Europe, the United States, Canada, South America, and get, get plugged in immediately. Call central office. Someone will come pick you up and take you to a meeting. And it was just like, I can do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like it, it been, this is pre Zoom, right? So, like, because I haven't toured since 2010 when my uh, oldest son was born. I wanted to be a part of their life. But I did a whole acoustic tour in like 2007 of Europe mm -hmm. by myself and took the train everywhere and went to meetings and played at night. It was like a vacation for me. It was phenomenal. I said, people would insist that I stay at their house. Uh-huh. Different culture, right? Like we're the only culture that throws people out at 18. It was just beautiful. I, I had never experienced it like that before. So I stayed with fans. You know, people on the program. I, I love going to meetings when I travel. My son and daughter-in-law live up in Boston for the last five years or so. But I've got a couple of home groups up there that when I come in every few months, I go to the meeting. And it's like I was just there yesterday and having a chance to get to know people. And several of the interviews I've done have been people who I've met at meetings out of town, which is very, very cool. Others on Zoom, of course, Zoom makes it considerably easier to find an excuse not to go to a meeting. And I've got mixed feelings about it. You know, there's sometimes, so I go to like six or seven live meetings a week and a couple of Zoom meetings a week. I do have guys I've sponsored who have not yet gone back to live meetings. And it's not because they're afraid of the, the COVID or anything like that. They've just gotten so used to going to non-live meetings that those are the only ones they'll go to. And, and I have to remind them that somewhere along the way, Bill Wilson said, this book is made, made just have to be sufficient. The only contact with AA that people have, and if that's how they stay sober is with the book and nothing else, I'd say the same about Zoom. If Zoom is the only way you're going to stay sober, then 
Yeah, absolutely. Tell me your feelings about Zoom and live meetings and people trading off one for the other. You know, at first I hated it, right? I hated the idea of having a camera on myself and being, you know, online. And But I, I think it, de- it depends on uh, individual comfort levels. Sure. For me, I, I came down again with the with that other disease, it's been a godsend because I host a meeting online five days a week that, uh, that, that I do. She's, I probably go on the average to three meetings a day, right. In, including working with, with other people online. Mm-hmm. But I also have the live meeting that I continue to go to, but it's really hard for me to be in, out in public because my immune system is so compromised. I really try to limit my live meetings only because of the chemotherapies and and, and they're, they're so uh, hardcore about you know me uh, keeping my respiratory system safe because of uh, all the side effects and, and things that could result from going to live meetings do I miss it yeah I, I miss it I'm actually I'm speaking at a, a meeting just it'll be about 500 people so that will be the biggest thing that I've been to since I got sick. I'm scared to death and I'm excited about it at the same time because I got sober there yeah. and all my heroes have spoken there. The Cliff Roaches <laughs> of the world, the Clancy's, the Johnny Harrison's, all these guys. This, this is where I met them. I was able to shake their hand and, and ask them individual questions. And, the fact that you go to so many Zoom meetings uh, up to three a day, I mean, that's that's amazing. And I, I was doing the same thing whenever it was just Zoom. It, it's It's just important to me. You know, the connection... We need to connect. We have to do what we have to do to be able to connect. And thank God AA has been real adaptable uh, to that sort of thing. When you were on the road and during the years that you were actively, before you got sick and when you were playing in bands and that sort of thing, obviously you're you're in a place where drugs and alcohol amongst the, the people you're working with, amongst the fan base and everything else, they're just everywhere set up boundaries for the people around you when it came to not drinking and not using? I'd say at first I was really uncomfortable with telling people that I didn't drink or that I had stopped drinking. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are like, oh, you're a quitter, blah, blah, blah. Right? This is what my head's telling me. It's not what they're actually saying. Most of them were ecstatic, right? <laughs> right? We're finally going to get the, the old guy back, right? Not this guy who believes that um, he's the king of the world, so to speak. I would tell people, I would not tell them that I went to AA. I would, I always felt like that was a weakness. Mm-hmm. They knew that about me. They would use that against me. So it took me a long time to realize that my alcoholism was a superpower mm-hmm. as opposed to a weakness. It allowed me to connect with people in a way that I would have never been able to connect with them. So I would just tell, you know, and I'm, I'm just not drinking and using today, man. I, I appreciate it. But the, the conversation at that point was over anyways, right? Because they're like, well, I am. So you just go about and do what something else. So, but I didn't do music for the first two years of my recovery because I, I felt like it was my, music has always been my demon and my savior at hmm. the same time. And at that point it was a demon. And, and I felt like, well, if I start going again and then I start getting that attention and things like that, like it's going to kill me. I really felt like it would kill me. What helped you turn the corner on that? I played at AA convention and, and I was always opposed to that. Like, <laughs> I, I, I was, like playing the fair, right? Like that's doomed, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, oh. And I, and I did it and I did it with my hat in hand and I did it without any expectation. I was terrified. Every time I play live, I'm terrified before I play it. It's mm-hmm. always been that way. I'm terrified. It doesn't matter if it's two people or if it's 10,000 people. I'm terrified because I don't want to make a mistake. And my recovery was a lot like that too. I don't want to make a mistake because I'm like Cyrus from the Da Vinci Code. I'm just whipping myself. <laughs> and I might may, may make a mistake. Right. I get that. So I played that convention and I just thought, oh, wow, you made it through it. You know, I don't take compliments well. I don't know if you can relate to that. I can. I feel like um, I feel like I'm really sharing who I am with you when I'm playing music for you. 
especially in intimate setting. It's a lot better if there's lights and I can't see anybody. A lot of the times I would never make on contact with anybody. I'd look up top of the crowd instead of at the crowd because I, I've, it's such an intimate thing for me. And I had to learn, like, you know, God gives us all talents. Mm-hmm. Cliff Roach said this, you have to bring your talents to AA and you have to give it away if you want to keep it. And I heard that from the time I was 17 till I was 32 years old, but I never heard it until I was 32 years old. Hmm. And it took me two years to trust people enough to let them in, in that aspect. Because people are like, when are you going to play again? What are you doing? You know, what, no, no, I don't do that. Anymore. I don't want to talk about that. I'm not here to talk about music. I'm not here to do any of that. And, and then I just let them in and, and some amazing things happened. That was, uh, I was in the recording studio and I was working on some songs and it was me and three other guys. And every single one of those guys, I had a poster of them on my wall as a kid. <laughs> Great. <laughs> they were talking about my songs, right? And I've been told by some of the, some, I mean, like when I was 20 years old, I was in top 5% of songwriters in the world. It almost destroyed me. When you say it almost destroyed you, was it an ego thing? Well, I believed it. You know, I believed it and, and I believed that uh, I needed, um, the thing here's what sucks about being like a songwriter you're only as good as your last song so what's going to be the next song right and i don't write like that i'm not like a nashville writer i'm a person who has to write from experience Mm -hmm. i've tried to do it the way that they do it and some of these guys they're they're just really good at that man they can just bang 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 10 songs a day out and to me i have to be able to feel it in order to be able to do it so I look at it as a channel from God. And and when I'm in it, that's all I can think about. And, but I try to replace that with, with AA most of the time. Because it's like, you ever see the movie Amadeus? You know when he was uh, uh, commissioned by what he thought was his dead father to write his final opera or his final piece? Mm-hmm. That's what it feels like to be in the middle of a song. When it's deep and dark and, and you're writing from personal experience, there's no better therapy. But you can't get stuck there. Well, you can't. And especially when the next question out of everybody's mouth or even out of our own mouths is, okay, now what? Yeah, now what? I've what done this. Do now? now what? And to me, that's the great question that comes up for everybody who gets sober in AA. I'm sober. Now what? And if you don't have a sufficient number of answers for that question, you're going to struggle and you'll be open to all kinds of influences from other people, whether inside or outside the program. And I have to be very careful over the years. I've run into people who I was very, very close to at one time. And, uh, you know, the first thing they say when I tell them I don't drink or that I'm in AA, I don't hesitate to to do that. Uh, I won't identify anybody else, but I'll say I'm in AA if it's a, if it's the right place and the right time. But the minute they say, you know what, Howard, you never really drank that much. And God, you weren't an alcoholic. I can't I can't imagine why you'd think that. And here I'm sober 20, 30 years and I'm thinking to myself, huh, maybe they got something there. And that scares me. That lets me know that the disease is alive and well. And and when I tell guys I sponsor about getting together with other people, especially when they say, oh, my friends know I don't drink and they 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 agree that I shouldn't drink and blah, blah, blah. I said, the minute their alcoholism and your alcoholism get together, you will not win that fight. Yeah. You know, if you've got any doubt that you're an alcoholic and you get together with them and they say you're not, there's going to be a part of you that agrees with them and not with what you're told here in the program. I got to be very careful of that. Yeah. Yeah. I know you do. I know you do. That's why I have to stay as active as I am. And people are like, how, why do you work with so many people? How do you do that? And I said, well, you don't understand how screwed up this head is. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like, aren't you ever going to not go to meetings? Like, no, man, that, that, this is where my social, this is my people. This is my tribe. And it sounds like your dedication to your own program and to the people in it, to me, shows a great deal of love. You know, when you talk about needing to get deep inside to get the words out, to me, that's nothing more than trying to find the best way possible to express love. So I, I just, I admire the heck out of that. 
I know we're not real good at taking compliments yeah. either. So if you want to say no, no, that's no, not no, me. no, I understand. That's, that's, <laughs> that's what I've practiced over the last twenty years and ten months. It's a lot of practice. We're practicing around here. None of us are perfect, and I'm definitely not perfect. And I still write a song with an intention of hearing it all over the radio and stuff like that. And, and most of the time these days, it doesn't happen. But once in a while, it does turn it on and have the kids in the car and know that it's coming on and not tell them. And then it comes on and there's, there's dad. Right. But it's more for them like that. They can, they can see that you can do things in this life that people told you, you probably wouldn't be able to do. What's great about what we've done today is you've, you've, you've spent quite a bit of time telling me about life in sobriety and how enriching it's been for you. And uh, well, I can tell you when I got here, I didn't have a license. I was being evicted from my plate. I'd lost everything that was near and dear to me. And, uh, you know, this much time later, you know, I sit in a comfortable house that I own with my two kids and, and my wife. And uh, we're relatively happy. I mean, I actually have an assets now, right, that uh, that I was never able to keep before. But I look at it all as gift. I could have missed this all. I could have missed all of this because I was trying to prove that I wasn't like my dad and that I was not an alcoholic. And in not thinking you could prove it, you've actually proved it. Proved it. I accepted it. Accepted it. Full concession to my innermost self that I am bodily and mentally different from my fellows when it comes to alcohol and drugs. And a lot of the times when it comes to emotional natures, too. Yeah. Well, you and I are cut from the same cloth on that one. <laughs> I've learned to laugh about it. I've learned to admit when I'm wrong. It's a, it's a whole different game. I mean, there was even a, a time where I said something that was offensive to you in a meeting mm. and we talked about it privately. And I learned something from that conversation. I'll tell you, I'll tell you what it was, but I said that my father was a step Nazi. My sponsor's sponsor for years, I'd be sitting in meetings with him and he'd say, you know, he's a big book Nazi. Yeah. And, you know, it finally got to me. And I said, you know, mentioning the word Nazi and anything to do with AA in the same sentence is almost sacrilegious. It's You know, I'd never heard that before until you said that to me. You explained it to me. The lights came on and I've never said it since. I feel like you and I have accomplished a purpose today. And that is giving a really, really strong message of hope and inspiration to anybody who hears this particular episode is going to hear a man of integrity, honor and purpose. And a man who I think lives his life out loud. I, am I safe saying that about you? Absolutely. Yeah. Open book. Yeah. An open book. And, it, and it's really beautiful to see and be a part of that experience. My hope is that lots and lots of people will hear this and we've made such a neat connection today. I agree. I, I really want to thank you for doing this, Scott. You, you're just a, you're a beautiful man and I love you. And many thanks for this. And I look forward to continuing our friendship on Zoom and in the world. For sure, Howard. Have a great day. You bet, brother. Take care. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Scott S., for sharing his story, and thank you for tuning in. Of course, you can listen to all my deep catalog of interviews in this podcast series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Amazon, and other podcast providers. Or tell your smart speaker, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every episode of AA Recovery Interviews. And if you want to contact me directly with any comments or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all podcast production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>